don't consider that a good sign. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to Acts 15. Acts 15 is where I'd like to uh, direct your attention this morning. While you're turning there, I'll mention two things. Uh, one, this is another week of fasting for us, uh, for Robin. And if you're interested in doing that, there is a sign-up sheet out at the Welcome Center and information card for you. Uh, we'd like somebody to, pr- uh, to fast and pray every day this week uh, for Robin, uh, one person uh, for at least all the seven days. So uh, you can sign up at the Welcome Center for that. Then next week, you'll have an opportunity to, um, again, participate in prayer and fasting for Keith and Vicki. Uh, Robin may be leaving April 30th still as a tentative date for her leaving, and the Cullens have tickets to go. I think their departure date is May 8th or something around there. So, um, The second thing I wanted to mention is several people have asked me about uh, the conference that we attended this uh, past week, and I'm very appreciative of the congregation and their permission uh, to go to that. Um, my wife and I went. We had a, a good time, and a couple... Uh, we, we saw some friends I haven't seen in a while, and uh, we were talking to them about some of the struggles that they have had in their church, uh, and it just made me grateful to be a part of this uh, congregation and uh, to be there with your uh, encouragement and support. So I came back not only uh, refreshed and hopefully a little bit smarter, but uh, uh, grateful too. Acts 15. Now, Acts 15, as we come to it here, we're walking through this book, aren't we? This book that tells us about the earliest followers of Jesus and how they fulfilled that great command that Jesus gave them. He said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And... uh, so far, we, have, we started with them right in Jerusalem. We saw the gospel spread to Judea. It went to Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And then in Acts chapter 13, Paul begins to take the gospel outside of Palestine to those ends of the earth. He spent uh, the most of the time that we have been studying in the region of Galatia. And now we come to Acts 15, which is at the center of the book. There are 12,500 words in the Greek text of Acts before chapter 15 and 12,300 words in the Greek text after Acts 15. This is the center of the book. Uh, So let's read it, all right, this chapter. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. The news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. 
He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written in the book of Amos. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins... I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbath, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth that we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. So this is a story uh, that is central in the book of Acts. Not only is it central here in the book of Acts, but the issue that's here is central to the mission that Jesus gave. It's central to Acts, it's central to the rest of the New Testament, and it's central to what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. Now the issue in this chapter is very simple. It's stated in verse 1, and it's um, clarified by Peter in verse 11. And the issue in this chapter is, what must you do to be saved? Verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 11, though, says, no, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. That's two very different answers to that question, isn't it? Now, uh, since the word saved is so important here in this context, uh, don't 
please, uh, I hope you don't mind if I do a little vocabulary review. What does he mean when he uses the word saved? We throw the word around a lot. Um, when non, people who are not followers of Jesus talk sometimes about us, they talk about how we use this phrase, saved. There was a movie about a Christian high school a few years ago uh, called Saved. And I wonder if the producers and the actors in that movie knew what that means. Saved. Saved from what? That's a better way to ask the question, maybe even. Uh, R.C. Sproul wrote a book a few years ago with that title, Saved from What? When the Bible uses the word saved, it's speaking about being rescued from the consequences of sin. Namely, being saved from God's wrath because of our sin. We... um, uh, uh, of course, I grew up next to Niagara Falls, not too far away, and I've seen Niagara Falls dozens of times. And if you stand on top of, of the falls uh, and watch, out in the middle there of the Niagara River, a little bit up from the falls, is a rusting barge. And if you ever take uh, any sort of uh, tour, th- somebody might explain to you why that rusting barge is there. Uh, there was, they were doing uh, work out on the uh, river or out on one of the Great Lakes, and uh, somehow the barge, they lost control of it, and it started sailing down the Niagara River to go over the falls. Um, it, just before it plummeted over the falls to the death of everyone on board, uh, it caught on some rocks and they rescued the men uh, that were working there in the barge. They were saved from certain death by going over the falls in the barge. Well, the story of the Bible, the Bible tells us the story of humanity is that we all were uh, under threat. We are born naturally and we ratify that by choice under the threat of not dying from going over the falls, but from facing the wrath of God because of our rebellion against him. But Jesus sent, uh, God sent his son to be our wrath bearer, to suffer on our place this wrath of God, which he did on the cross. We're saved through Jesus, by Jesus. Not because of anything we have done, but again, to, to quote Peter, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Now, if you've been around our church for any sort of length of time, you've probably heard people talk about that, um, maybe over and over again. We are saved not by our own works, not by our own merit, not by our own ritual, not, uh, not by our own goodness, but by Jesus, by the, by the work of Christ on the cross alone. It comes up a lot in the Bible. It comes up a lot in our conversation. And the reason that it comes up a lot is because there is part of us, there's something in our hearts that just doesn't like this. In fact, I think that you and I, we would naturally be more comfortable if there was a little bit more talk in the Bible about earning and working. There was just a little bit more in the Bible about doing and less than uh, about trusting. I think this is true for a number of reasons. It, If there was more in the Bible about doing and earning, it would certainly match our understanding or the way we like to think about ourselves. We like to talk about ourselves as being competent and able and uh, uh, worthy. And all this talk in the Bible about depravity and inability, it's kind of embarrassing a little bit. It's not how we like to think of ourselves. We are Americans. We earn our way. Uh, Martin Luther, when he died... Uh, he had a heart attack in the middle of the night, and um, he was with some people, and 
uh, they were talking to him, and, and he had written some things down and in his pocket when he died. They found pieces of paper, and the, one of the last things that Martin Luther wrote uh, was this sentence, we are all beggars before God. That's not the way we like to think of ourselves. If you're walking downtown to go to the central market or if you see somebody on a street corner begging, you, you don't think positively about them or how you'd like to be like them or with them. Or maybe you, you think to yourself, heck, I should just get a job. Right? This is not the way we like to think about ourselves. Michael uh, Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, was uh, a few years ago, he attended his uh, college, the reunion of his college graduation. He's 72 years old, he was at the time. And he uh, was talking at this reunion about uh, how his own mortality has been striking him recently. It's 50 years since he graduated from high school, and some of his classmates uh, had already died, and he was thinking about his own mortality and whether it was something that he should be uh, worried about. There was a newspaper article that was written about it. Listen, if Bloomberg senses that he may not have as much time left as he would like, he has little doubt about what would await him at a judgment day. Pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, he said with a grin, I am telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. That's not doesn't accord very well with Martin Luther. We are all beggars before God. If the Bible talked about earning and, and working a little bit more, it would give us a standard to compare ourselves with others, wouldn't it? And it would give us a little more confidence if we could compare ourselves with other people. Um, my children, they bring home their report cards, and the teachers give them to them, and the teachers always say to them now, don't look at these on the school bus. These are Your grades are your business and your parents' business. Don't share them with others. Your grades are not the most important thing about you. <laughs> no, they're not, because this week the most important thing about them is their PSSA scores. Um, so I wonder, how many of those uh, children do you think don't open their report card in the bus? Hmm. Um, this is the academic measure of how you have worked for how, what you've done for 35 hours a week. And it's not really the most important thing about you. We, we, we know that, right? But it's awfully hard not to think that when you have a C on your paper and someone else has a B on their paper. It's awful hard not to draw some conclusions about that. Whether you're right or wrong, they're the, it's black and white. When, when you graduate, right, you don't get a report card anymore, but we still don't stop comparing one another with one another. Uh, we compare how much money we make and the type of car we drive and how beautifully behaved our children are and how much influence we have at church. We have this, we have this compulsive drive to compare. And if the Bible said more about working and earning, it would give us a standard to compare, wouldn't it? Now we just have to make up our own. If the Bible said more about it, that would be helpful. If the Bible said more about work and earning, it would give us some sense of control over what happens. 
We get very confused when people who are, we think are worse than we are, bad people, when good things happen to them and good things don't happen to us, especially when we're good and they're bad. And that confuses us a lot. But if the Bible talked a lot more about working and earning and justifying yourself, those comparisons, they'd make more sense. We'd be able to to understand, well, if bad things happen to you, you're just a bad person because that's what the Bible says. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. If the Bible said more about working and earning and less about grace. A few years ago, uh, during one of his on-the-street uh, interviews, Jay Leno was uh, walking around and he was asking people to identify the Ten Commandments just out on the street randomly. And the most popular answer, which is not even in the Bible, is this God helps those who help themselves. Hmm. Completely antithetical, isn't it, to what Peter says in verse 11? We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Now, Acts 15 is a specific story about a specific circumstance, but the central issue is what must you do to be saved? It's an important chapter. We're going to spend two weeks looking at it uh, together. Um, There's a a few various elements here in this. Four things, actually, that I want to show you over the next couple weeks. The first thing that we're going to look at is we're going to talk about the backstory of this controversy. Uh, This shows up, the controversy that's here shows up in almost all of Paul's epistles, and it's worth looking at the background here. Secondly, we're going to talk about this council that is described here, this unusual meeting. It's going to give us a wonderful chance to talk about church government, which is what any sane person would love to talk about all the time. Then third, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the solution. How do they solve this problem that has come up? I think there's three answers in the text. We're going to look at one of them this morning, and we'll save the other two, Lord willing, for next week. And then finally in this chapter, there's the issue of fellowship. How can people who are so different from one another, in this case Jews and Gentiles, how really can they function together in one body? Um, So that's the plan as we unfold this chapter. I want to give you a flavor of all four of those things. Let's start this morning with the backstory here, the backstory of this passage. And the backstory is about Paul's confrontation with the Judaizers. Paul's confrontation with the Judaizers. Now the phrase Judaizer or the title Judaizer is not one that's in the New Testament, um, but it describes a group of men who dogged the Apostle Paul. Um, Paul, uh, these were Jewish teachers that would follow Paul in every city he visited, and they would gather the new followers of Jesus together, these non-Jewish followers of Jesus, and they would tell them, yes, Paul has a good message about Jesus, and you should believe in Jesus, but if you really want to be saved, that is, really saved, then you need to uh, be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. That's the way to be really saved. I understand some of their concerns. I understand why these Jewish teachers were were doing this. Maybe they were thinking to themselves, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. How can you claim to follow the Jewish Messiah without being Jewish? It doesn't make any sense. Maybe they were concerned a little bit about their own identity as a people. This church, this new body that's being formed here, uh, so many Gentiles are coming in. What's going to happen to us as as, as Jewish people and our identity. 
About 150 years before Jesus was born, the story is not told in the Bible itself. There was a ruler who ruled over Palestine. His name, he was Greek, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, which I don't recommend using for your children. But Antiochus Epiphanes was convinced that he wanted to stamp out Judaism and the Jewish identity. He wanted to make people Greek. So he, uh, he uh, outlawed circumcision and he made them stop reading the, the Old Testament and he made it illegal to offer sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. And he, he tried to stamp down Judaism and, and the Jews revolted and rebelled against him. And, and, and so they established their own rights as a people to follow these laws and have these practices. And now, people, followers of the Messiah, the Old Testament Messiah, they, they're not following these rules that we fought for. What's going to happen to us? Maybe they were concerned because you read in the Old Testament, they could read in the Old Testament that it was when their ancestors didn't follow the law that they were judged and exiled, and maybe they were concerned about that. A lot of concerns, I understand them. But they, but they raise this issue, how can Gentiles be rightly related to the Jewish Messiah? And, they, and their teaching dogged the Apostle Paul. In fact, this was the issue that was central to his arrest, what he was doing with the law. Um, we're going to look through a couple of the epistles uh, for just a minute. But I want you to flip over with me to Acts 21. Acts 21. This is later in Paul's ministry. Acts 21. Look at verse 27. Paul has taken a vow. He's gone through some days of purification. And uh, that's what it's referring to in Acts 21, verse 27. The text says, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple, and they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defied this holy place which verse 29 tells us that he didn't actually do it. But notice the teaching here. The issue here is Paul's teaching about the law. Is he teaching people to follow the law or not? That's an issue at the end of his ministry. It was an issue all the way through his ministry. Let me show you that. Uh, Let's survey for a few minutes. Turn with me to the right to the book of Galatians, to the book of Galatians. Galatians is a good place to start because I think this issue, uh, what must you do to be saved, in relation to the law, is at the heart of the book of Galatians. In fact, remember here, uh, Paul's ministry that we just talked about in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby was in the region of Galatia. Paul wrote Galatians to those believers there. And I think he wrote Galatians before the events of Acts 15. He went on his missionary journey. He came home. He wrote Galatians. And then the issue of Acts 15 came up. Now, a little bit of inside baseball, if you've done New Testament introduction, that's a controversial issue. When did Paul write Galatians in relation to Acts 15? I think he wrote it before Acts 15 because if the council had already happened, he would have referred to that in the book of Galatians, but he didn't. So the end of inside baseball. So we can argue about that some other time. Verse 6, Galatians 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ, that is me, and are turning to a different gospel taught by other people, 
which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you've accepted, let them be under God's curse. There are false teachers in Galatia. They're teaching a false gospel. What are they teaching? Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Galatians. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh, that is, by obeying the law? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So I, again, I ask you, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So again, there's this issue. You're not saved by the law. One more uh, passage, Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. Um, You'll be pleased to know that in a couple of months, during most of June, Pastor Scott's going to give us a more focused attention on the book of Galatians. It's just wonderful timing in our study of the book of Acts. Galatians 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Remember that Peter uses the word yoke here. Keep that in your mind. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now skip down to verse 12 here. Paul's very serious about this. As for these agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. This is not something we talk about in Sunday school very often. Paul says, hey, if you're going to circumcise yourself, don't just go JV, go varsity, cut the whole thing off. That's serious. Well, that's the issue in Galatia. We're going to cut that short and move on to Philippians, all right? So flip over with me two books. I can't believe I said that. Philippians chapter 3. Two bucks to the right. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Again, this, this dogged Paul's ministry. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Well, they're circumcising. That's why they're mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. And last week, Scott, again, opened up this passage to talk about putting these things behind. His, Paul's record of obeying the law is something he puts behind him in Christ. 
Now, one more passage. I'm going to ask you to turn one more book to the right. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Again, in every city Paul went to, he had to warn them against this, these false teachers that would come in and say, you have to obey the law in order to be genuine followers of Jesus. Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are just a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Don't think that you are better off for following the law. In fact, he talks about the circumcision that they had already experienced actually in Jesus back in verse 11. In him, in Jesus, you also were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So there is a circumcision to be had by followers of Jesus, but it is a spiritual one on the basis of their faith. It is not a physical one to satisfy the law requirement of Moses. This happened to Paul. These false teachers came everywhere Paul went, and he constantly had to battle with this issue. That's the backstory that we come to before uh, we, we get into Acts 15. So let's go back to Acts 15, shall we? And I want to show you that uh, just again here quickly uh, in this text. These false teachers came down from Judea to Antioch and said... Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. It's a problem in the New Testament, all the way through the New Testament. And actually, it's a problem still for us, this tendency we have toward earning and working. Now, this is a very important issue. It's a very controversial issue. So now, secondly, we need to talk about the council in Jerusalem and uh, I'll call this the consultation with the church, the consultation with the church. It's a huge issue. It determines what you preach. It determines how Paul was going to teach the Gentiles about the grace of God. It's about the unity of the church. So they assembled together in Jerusalem, and that's described in verses 2 to 5. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Now, uh, there's the controversy and the discussion that they have. And some people see in this passage, this council, a pattern for how the church is supposed to function. These, uh, those theologians and Bible teachers would identify this as the first ecumenical council of Jerusalem. Um, and, and they argue that whenever there's a large issue in the church, a significant controversy, there should be a meeting like this. Leaders should gather and discuss the issue together, and then they can come up with a binding, clarifying statement. Some of you wonder, if you study church history, maybe you've heard people talk about the Council of Nicaea or the Council of Chalcedon or the Council of Constantinople. Well, they called those council meetings following this model here in Acts chapter 15. 
Um, and some uh, want to argue that this is how the church should consistently solve its issues. The last so-called ecumenical council was Vatican II that was held, what, in the 60s, I think. The Second Vatican Council. I think that there were some very good things that came out of those early councils. I'm grateful to God for them. But I don't think that this is uh, a, a, an authoritative pattern for the church to have. One of the things that's interesting in the book of Acts is there are always, throughout the book of Acts, the uh, authority of the apostles, and that's very important. But one of the things that happens as Acts unfolds is that power gets spread or authority gets spread and distributed. Um, one of my uh, professors, when I took a leadership class, his name was Ken Gangle, he says, power like hot air always rises and must consistently be pushed back down. And notice what happens here in this text is that this is not something that is, that is uh, promoted chiefly by the apostles. It's actually the church that does this, these local congregations. Verse 3, the church sent them on their way. Then in verse Four, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. I find that order to be very interesting. The, the, the authority here is being pushed down. In Acts chapter 6, do you remember this, when they had a, a, a trouble with how the widows were being fed? Who solved the problem? Well, the apostles took the leadership. The apostles told the church to nominate some men that they would appoint as maybe early deacons there. So the apostles take prominence. In the text here, it's, this is a meaning of the church. And without denigrating the, the authority of the apostles, there they are, the apostles and the elders. There were no elders in Acts 6. There was no um, primacy given to the church there. What happens in the book of Acts is that authority is being pushed down and spread out. So I, by the time you get to the pastoral epistles, you find um, local churches having this level of authority. Uh, so Acts 15, I don't think it's a pattern, but it is crucial. And uh, maybe it helps if you've ever wondered where the councils came from. Well, here's the first one. Now, verses 6 through 11 tell us about this debate here that happens. Uh, let, let's look at it again, shall we? The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke? Ah, yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Now next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about more of what Peter raises in verses 7 and 8 and 9. But for today, I want to focus on verses 10 and 11 as we come to the solution to the problem, the resolution of this problem. And the resolution of this problem is the confirmation of salvation by grace alone. Confirmation of salvation by grace alone. And Acts 15 tells us three reasons why this church, why this church meeting upheld salvation by grace. We're going to talk about the first one today and the next two next week, Lord willing. 
Peter argues in verses 10 and 11 for salvation by grace alone because no one has ever successfully met God's standards. No one has ever successfully met God's standards. Verse 10, Peter uses that word yoke. It's a good word. Paul used it in Galatians, didn't he? The yoke of slavery of the law. Uh, you, you know what a yoke is, of course, is that wooden bar with a little circle that you'd put over the head of animals and you would use it to train them or to, uh, uh, to uh, harness them so that they could work in the field. Before Jesus was born, if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, they talked about him as if he were taking on the yoke. And here's the problem that Peter points out. Listen, no one has been able to bear that yoke. No one has been able to successfully follow God like that. Why do you want to bind these new followers of Jesus to a standard that no one has successfully obeyed? How can we possibly make that a condition for salvation? A few years ago, I listened to a a sermon by Rick Warren. I don't listen to a lot of sermons by Rick Warren, but he said something interesting. I thought he said, there are two ways that you can get to heaven. Two ways. The first way is perfect obedience to the commands of God. If, if you obey God absolutely perfectly, then you can get to heaven. It was baseball season, I think, when he said this. So it's baseball season now. He said, if you're a baseball player and you bat 300, that's you hit the ball uh, three out of ten times and get on base, um, and you do that for a number of years, you are Hall of Fame material. You can make it into the Hall of Fame batting 300. But you can't get to heaven batting 300. You have to bat 1,000 to get into heaven. You have to obey perfectly. That's one way to get there. I, there's nobody here who's qualified, though. Uh, in fact, uh, by nature, you don't qualify. The other way that you can get there, if you can't bat a thousand, the other way to get there is by the grace of Jesus Christ, by trusting in him, by throwing yourself on God's mercy offered through Jesus Christ. And friend, that is your only option. If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. It's my privilege to be able to tell this to you, to speak to you about this. Some of you, um, people, people sometimes say to you, um, so are you a Christian? Are, are, you, are you a follower of Jesus? Are you going to go to heaven when you die? And, and some of you, your response, you say, I hope so. I'm not sure. I hope that, that God will, will take me. I hope you don't say that because you're, you're trying to weigh your, your goodness. That, that you, you're, you're trying to evaluate your life to see if you're good enough, maybe if, if you're... You're good enough. Maybe Jesus will take you in. That is not the question at all. You you can't be good enough. It's only through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Oh, put your deadly doing down. Now, I confess here as, as we look at this, this passage should be enough for us. It should be enough to stop us. But we human beings, again, we have, we have this longing, this desire to earn. So we, 
We have, over time, developed some workarounds, maybe, to this grace system in the Bible. They're not helpful, but we like to think that they are helpful. Um, the ways to work around this, maybe. So, uh, since we can't bear the yoke and we can't meet the standards, we try two things, and they often go together. We try either first to minimize God's standards... It is we reduce the list to things that we can do, that we can handle, we minimize them. Or secondly, we externalize God's standard and, and make them about outside things so we don't have to actually look, let a, look at our heart. Now, Jesus uh, spoke about this in his confrontation with the Pharisees a couple times. Uh, I printed out some verses from Matthew 23 that are on your sheet. Look what Matthew 23 and 24 says. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Imagine how silly this is, right? It's tithing time. So what do they do? Pharisees, they go to their cupboard, and they open their spice cabinet, and they pull out their mint, and they count how many leaves they have. And if they have ten leaves, one's got to go. Ties my spices. Or uh, if they only have five, they cut one in half and take half. Ten percent. They count their mint leaves, their dill weed, their cumin. It must have taken forever, right? Everything. It sounds like a pain. That's a terrible pain. But you know, it's a lot easier than actually showing mercy. I'd much rather count leaves any given day than have to be to pursue justice faithfulness so much easier it's easy to measure it's easy to control it's it's external it's minimized it's externalized now if jesus were here today and he were talking to us about our tendency to minimize and externalize what would he say this is what he might have said 30 years ago. This is, this is where I grew up. This is what I could have heard. Woe to you, evangelicals and fundamentalists, you hypocrites. You don't smoke, drink, dance, swear, but you have neglected the most important matters of the law, grace, forgiveness, and acceptance. Maybe today he'd say something like this. Woe to you, you millennial Christians. You recycle. You protest social justice. You love to talk about authenticity. You despise the hypocrisy of your parents. But you have forgotten the most important matters of the law. Holiness, integrity, purity. Let's be really honest about what the Bible says about us. We stand condemned. Paul said this in Romans chapter 3. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Because that's true, we need Peter to be right, don't we? We need Peter to be right in this debate. Because it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we're saved. It's grace from first to last. There's nothing that you can do to make you worthy of God's forgiveness. You cannot clean yourself up. You cannot earn it. There's no amount of behavior modification, no amount of tears you can cry, no list of promises you can make. When the Bible talks about your ability to merit God's mercy, it tells us we are dead. And dead people can never impress God with how good they are. 
John Stott in his book called Authentic Christianity uh, wrote this. The repeated promises in the Quran of the forgiveness of a compassionate and merciful Allah are all made to the meritorious whose merits have been weighed in Allah's scales. Whereas the gospel is good news of mercy to the undeserving. Listen, the symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. There's nothing you can do to make yourself worthy of God's grace. There's nothing you can do to keep yourself worthy of God's grace. It is all of Christ. We are beggars before God. It's why we sing that song, Come Ye Sinners, often. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. It's interesting. We're going to talk about fellowship next week. But I wonder if it struck you yet that the only way that you can truly love someone selflessly is if you yourself are the object of outrageous grace. If you don't know the grace of God, other people will not be the objects of your love. They will either be your competitors or they will be your tools for enhancing your worthiness before God. We'll talk more about that next week. Uh, J. Gresham Machen was a theologian. He was a pastor at the beginning of the 20th century, and he, was, um, he used to teach at Princeton, and then he was, uh, left Princeton, and he was defrocked by his denomination. He was on a tour speaking out in the West, and the, one of the last things that he said, he sent a telegram home to his friends in Pennsylvania, and he said, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. Strike his odd last words, maybe. So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. What he means is he means that Christ has lived the life that J. Gresham Machen should have lived. You should have lived, batting a thousand. But then Christ also died the death, the death of the guilty that you should have died. How can anyone be saved? We believe. Oh, we believe. It is by the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we come before you and we are uh, joyful at this good news that is determined and proclaimed here in Acts chapter 15. Lord, we, we see the controversy that's here and we recognize that these teachers are dealing with issues that arise in our own hearts. Father, because of our pride or our fear or our sense of shame, you know we are loath to confess the truth of this, that we are beggars before God and dependent upon the grace of God. Thank you, Lord, that um, your word is clear and true and it trumpets us over and over and over again. By grace you're saved through faith, not of works. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by your mercy, your kindness. Lord, uh, would you shape us as a congregation that this would be our triumphant joy grace of the Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for the men and women in our congregation who are here this morning who 
are, are fearful before you, not having yet owned this, what Peter says. And Lord, I pray that you would set them free from their own earning or their own failure to earn like they think they ought and, and exalt, lift up Jesus in their minds and their hearts so that they might have the glad assurance of confidence before Jesus Christ who is our great Savior, full of grace. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.